Welcome to God's Playbook with your host, Father Rico Passero. It's a 20, 10, 5, touchdown! Touchdown! Let's play ball. Friends, welcome back on this glorious day to God's Playbook. I'm joined again by a close friend of mine, Father Chris Kulig, who was introduced to us previously as he spoke to us about his vocation to being a Carmelite priest. And I've definitely wanted to have him back to maybe talk a little bit about Carmelite spirituality. Welcome, Father Chris. It's good to be back, Father Rico. So, my dear friend, help us to understand this beauty, this graced spirituality, which we call Carmelite spirituality. Perhaps you can help our listeners and myself learn more about some of the way that you live your life, the Carmelite rule, some of the saints, etc. We'd love to to hear what you have to share with us, Father Chris. Well, I'd be happy to. I guess I would begin with the word Carmel itself. So Carmel, from the Hebrew, means God's garden. So this would evoke the Garden of Eden primarily, I think. But as many people have found God in garden settings, most famously Augustine, as he was uh, struggling with his coming to faith, it's this idea of getting back to paradise. In fact, our early Carmelite literature says that the focus of Carmelite life is twofold, to offer to God a heart that is pure and holy and to taste in this life some of the bliss that will come to us in the next. And so it was in their desire to know God that the early Carmelites gathered on Mount Carmel to live a life of prayer and community. We don't have any historical record from those most early days. The one piece we have is the rule of St. Albert that came to us between 1208 and 1214. And in that rule, our scholars suggest there are two chapters that are the focus of our life. One is chapter 10, to be in our cell, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, unless occupied with some other duty, or, if feasible, to hear Mass every morning in chapter 14. So daily Eucharist, personal prayer. If there are two of the primary chapters or a rule, those would be the top two candidates. Now, this was at the time of the Crusades, Father Rico, so the 1200s, where it was only possible for the Carmelites to get there because Richard III had gained a, a foothold on the seaboard. It would be about 1291 that the Carmelites had to leave Mount Carmel or be martyred because the Saracens had taken over that land. But what happened in that 13th century is that the men who came to Carmel formed a religious community uh, in the mendicant tradition, or would become the mendicant tradition, and not all of them stayed at Mount Carmel. Some of them were going back to Europe from where they came. It probably was a rather motley crew that came to Carmel, being near the port city of Acre and Haifa. So you could have sailors, you could have crusaders, you could have pilgrims who were going on their way to Jerusalem because the pilgrim path led through Mount Carmel. Uh, the Muslims during that time did allow pilgrims to come to Jerusalem, uh, despite the Crusades going on. 
But the men there wanted to live a life of prayer and express their devotion to Our Lady in the spirit of Elijah. So first we'll start with Elijah, where we get the holiness of Mount Carmel, where in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, Elijah calls the Israelites back to faithfulness in Yahweh because the evil queen Jezebel, who had married Ahab, had brought her pagan gods, the Baals, and required people to worship them. So Elijah, in a stunning display, calls down fire on the sacrifice to show that Yahweh is the one true God and says all of Israel believes in Yahweh again. So it's a holy place where the prophet calls people back to their faithfulness in God. Before that, we have a picture of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 in the Wadi Kareth, living a more contemplative life, which is probably what the men lived up there in terms of praying in their cells and gathering for common meals and common worship. In 1 Kings 19 is where Elijah kind of goes on a sabbatical of sorts. He wants to hang up his prophetic mantle, as it were, because Queen Jezebel is seeking his life. So he goes back to where it all began for the Jewish people on Mount Horeb, on Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And a mystical experience happens where there is an earthquake, a wind, and a fire. But God is not in these theophanies. They're important details because when Moses received the Ten Commandments, one will read in Exodus that the ground shook, there was a great wind, and there was smoke indicating a fire. It's only when there is a still, small voice, the whispering breeze, or the sheer silence, scholars don't know exactly how it's translated, that Elijah recognizes the presence of God. That passage, aside from promoting silence, which is part of our rule in terms of listening in a life of prayer, I think is also important because it says that Elijah found God in a new way, a new way that came out of procession with the old. And I would suggest to anyone who reads the Carmelite saints that they are in the tradition of Catholicism giving us a new way to understand the mystery of God. Teresa of Avila would say it's her interior castle. John of the Cross, it's the ascent of Mount Carmel. Therese of Lijoux, the way of spiritual childhood. All perfectly fine and within our tradition, but something new, some new image, some new articulation. It almost gives the sense, too, then it's this God speaking to us in a fresh way, in a new way, and how exciting that is to see that God doesn't wait for us to figure things out. He reveals himself in a variety of ways and in unexpected ways, like the silence that you spoke to. Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. Now, the men there were devoted to Our Lady of Mount Carmel, to Mary. So this she's an even more important figure than Elijah. In fact, the earliest image they used purportedly from Mount Carmel itself, uh, La Bruna, because it's Mary with brown skin, as most Mediterraneans are, are, are so colored, as it were. The uh, now hangs in Naples, Italy, with the Neapolitan community. But so Mary is the, the, the main figure uh, that Carmelites, and I think we all try to follow in echoing her, yes, the perfect disciple. But if there's any take on Carmelite spirituality that 
Carmelites offer to the church on Our Lady, it's a combination of many images of her as mother, as sister even, because our title is technically the Brothers of the Blessed Virgin Mary of Mount Carmel. If we are her brothers, she is our sister. These are not unique to the Carmelites. Also, her as the, the Virgin Most Pure. In fact, my province is named the Most Pure Heart of Mary. And lastly, Mary as patron. I think this one is kind of unique because it came out of that time of the Crusades and chivalry that every knight has a lady for whom he fights, the Lord and his lady. So Jesus and his blessed mother. So even in our rule, we talk about putting on the spiritual armor, quoting Paul from Ephesians. So Carmelites go live a life of prayer to do interior battle, not exterior, interior battle with, you know, the forces of of evil to live a holy life. And we do it for the sake of Our Lady. She's our inspiration. And of course, our Lord. But these are the primary figures in, in Carmelite spirituality. The uh, church throughout history, people have tried to articulate our charism. John Courtney Murray said that he felt that the Carmels in the world were, were people went to find their God to have some experience of God. Pope Francis at our current uh, general uh, con uh, general congregation in Rome that's going around with Carmelites in the world gathering together uh, had this to say. Uh -huh. And even as recently as this month at our general congregation in Rome where worldwide Carmelites are gathering to discuss our life, Pope Francis had this to say about the Carmelite vocation. The first is fidelity and contemplation. The Carmelite mission is fruitful to the extent that it is rooted in their personal relationship with God, which is marked by solitude, contemplation, and detachment from the world. The Carmelite way of living contemplation, he said, prepares them to serve the people of God through any ministry or apostolate, having at heart especially the spiritual journey of people. I think Pope Francis puts it well. We have to be true to our life of prayer. Contemplation, solitude, detachment from the world, and companioning people on their spiritual journey. Because as I, I mentioned earlier, that the Carmelites had to leave Mount Carmel and settle in cities. This was the first and major transition that really colored our vocation from being hermits or Chenobites, kind of like monks, separated completely from the world, and being active ministers. In fact, I think that's the tension nowadays of Carmelite life is how much time we devote to contemplation and solitude and how much time we have for ministry, which can be very demanding and can take up a lot of time. In fact, one of the earliest priors general of the Carmelites, Nicholas Serbone, wrote a rather challenging letter to the community saying that we had to get back to ourselves more and spend more time there to prepare for ministry, to be with the people, but to have less availability to them. That, I think, is the tension that follows anyone who wishes to follow us Carmelites in the ancient observance. I think is different for the Carmelite uh, discalced women, which we'll get to in our history here in a few minutes. But Carmel came into the city. And with that, there were some tensions, at least juridically, because 
one interesting thing that happened in the church was the Lateran for Council in 1215, because we weren't the only mendicants groups being formed at this time. This was the time of Dominic and Francis, and the church was wary of mendicants. They didn't know what religious orders were, so Lateran for suppressed all new uh, religious orders. There could not be a new religious order. So there are religious communities since, but to have the title order and be a mendicant, that falls, from what I understand, simply to the Carmelites, the Dominicans, Franciscans, and Augustinians. Because as I mentioned, our rule came from St. Albert no later than 1214, because that's when Albert died. So we got in under the time frame there. The Dominicans were especially helpful in having us uh, adjust to city life and to adapt as ministers and to get official church standing. And there are documents galore of uh, from the papacy and the Vatican, you know, saying, yes, we are legitimate ministers. Uh, in fact, the one book I quoted earlier about our twofold purpose, the first book of the monks, was actually somewhat of Carmelite fake news because it was a fabricated book written in the 14th century, but claimed to be early on saying that there was a long line of Carmelites from the time of Elijah, so a thousand years before Christ, always waiting for the Savior and continuing on up until the present day. Historically, it's it's untrue, but spiritually speaking, it's said that we've been here in that spirit since Elijah. It leads to some funny artwork or some interesting artwork of Carmelites wearing 13th century habits on Mount Carmel having a picnic with the Holy Family. <laughs> and, and other things we borrowed that some of the Carmelites came and heard the preaching of Peter and were baptized early on there in Acts. It really is quite a, a creative allegorical interpretation of a lot of the missing pieces of the scripture. But it shows the Carmelite mindset that says, you know, we've always been here waiting for our Savior. We've always been men of prayer. And we go back, at least in spirit, to Elijah and Mount Carmel. But again, like I said, we did not stay on Mount Carmel. We brought that gift to the larger church. But the church, as we knew, had to go through Reformation in the 16th century, and our Carmelite order was no different. The greatest reformers of those times were Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, and because of their reform, after they died, the leadership afterwards broke off juridically. They started a new group that has their own leadership, the Order of Carmelites Discalced. And truth be told, I think that's probably a good thing because the, the life of the Carmelite women in their cloistered monasteries is that ideal that Teresa wanted to get to of life on Mount Carmel, a life of separated solitude and prayer. In fact, we are blessed with several Carmels in the area here. There's the one of Carmel of St. Joseph up in St. Agatha. There's one in Buffalo, New York. And I think there's one in, in Zephyr around the Toronto area. But there are about 11,000 of my Carmelite sisters in the world. There are about 2,000 of us ancient observance men, and I think about 2,000 discalced men throughout the world. And, and I mention that number because... There was a time when Carmel seemed like it might have died out, and that was the time of the French, the French Revolution, which, if you think about it, Therese came after that time because Carmel got refounded in 
France in about her Carmel in 1850. Uh, but for us, we lost all of our Carmelite houses in 1794 because the French Revolution outlawed all religious communities. The Discalced nuns in Compiègne would not disband, and they were guillotined on July 17, 1794, in the Reign of Terror. Uh, one of our Carmelite priests, uh, a, a man who was beatified in the 50s, uh, Father Jacques Retore, was convicted of, again, disobeying the law, not uh, leaving his religious community. He was supposed to be sent to exile in Guiana, French Guiana, but died on uh, a ship outside moored outside of France because of the war with England at the time. Uh, but these are people who stayed true to their life and died for uh, uh, the gift of our religious community. The problem after the French Revolution was that Napoleon, in conquering Europe, spread this law of outlawing religious communities throughout all of Europe. Only places like Malta and Ireland were untouched by it. In Germany, in the town of Straubing, there was one Carmelite left, Father Petrus Heiser. Until 1841, when the law was relaxed, done away with, and Petrus was allowed to take students. In 1864, there were six Carmelites in Straubing. And I mention Straubing because the generosity of Father Petrus has borne great fruit. In 1864, he sent two of the Carmelites, Father Cyril Knoll and Xavier Huber, to minister to German-speaking immigrants who came to America. And they found their way to Leavenworth, Kansas, and began the Carmelite Order, the province of the Most Pure Heart of Mary, in America at that time. And they were gifted with so many vocations that just 11 years later, in 1875, they were able to send men to minister in New Jersey, at St. Cecilia's Parish, where we're at to this day, and, more importantly, here to Niagara Falls, Canada, where we began ministering at Our Lady of Peace Parish, St. Patrick's Parish, and we eventually began the building that was the hospice and the monastery of Mount Carmel. So we've been here for almost 150 years. So that gift of two people, a full third of his community, after 20 years of being alone, gave us a province of 500 men 50 years ago. We're down to about 150, 170 nowadays, but we're finding vocations in Central and South America where our numbers are going up to about 175 and maybe 200. But Carmel did not die out because I think at heart people have a yearning for God and the gift of Carmel has drawn men and women to express that gift. We have about 2,000 men in the world today. We went down to about 200 during that nadir of the French Revolution. And as our leadership says, we probably have about 2,000 men 50 years from now. It's just that instead of being here in North America and Europe, most of our vacations will be in Central, South America, Africa, and, and Asia. And India is a big place for our Carmelite uh, order as well. But it is that hunger for the experience of God that I think is at the heart of Carmel. And as one of my brother Carmelites said, will always draw men to, uh, to, find, uh, to find a vocation with us and to share the fruit of their contemplation with the people to whom we minister. So, Father Chris, the richness of Carmelite spirituality is found, as you've so beautifully shared with us throughout your history, 
dating back to Elijah and some of the Carmelite saints. What might you suggest to our listeners who might want to get to know more about Carmelite spirituality? Are there particular resources that you might suggest that they pick up on their their wish list at Christmas or for their birthday? Or how can you help us to grow in our knowledge of Carmelite spirituality? Uh, There are a few books out there that you could probably find on Amazon.com. One was by an Australian Carmelite. It was the the first book I was given that entranced me. It was called The Springs of Carmel by Peter Slattery. And then one of our own in my province, Father Jack Welsh, wrote a book called The Carmelite Way. And I think these are good introductory books to the gift of Carmel and the tradition that the saints have had of living out our charism. The uh, primary texts of Teresa, John, and Therese are always quite good. Therese's story of a soul, uh, classics such as the uh, Teresa, I would say, begin with the life and the way of perfection, and then the interior castle. That was the order in which she wrote them and shows the maturity of her thought. You can either get those books either in a compendium or they they're so popular they are printed on their own. Uh, the most difficult Carmelite is really John of the Cross, and I would I would approach him last, and I would even start with his living flame of love because it's kind of the happy ending to the spiritual uh, journey. The ascent of Mount Carmel uh, would be the first, and then the dark night of the soul is probably the most difficult and uh, sometimes harrowing from what he describes of some of the uh, purification that goes on in his uh, his prayer life with God. But the thing to remember when reading them, particularly Teresa, is that she wrote them for her sister's to be better at their prayer. She wrote early instruction books in prayer. The easiest to access is probably Therese's story of a soul because it reads naturally like a letter that Therese wrote to her sister Pauline about her experience of God. And uh, I think anyone can readily understand what she's talking about. Father Chris, as always, we are blessed by your ministry, especially enlightening us today on Carmelite spirituality. Thank you for being with us and being with our listeners. Perhaps you can close off with a blessing for our listeners who are trying to grow in their relationship with God, please. Sure, sure. For those of you out there, if you don't know the response to the first part, it's uh, who made heaven and earth. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. Heavenly Father, you made all good things, and you made the order of Carmel to be a people of prayer who pray for the salvation of souls and the good of the world. So we ask for the intercession of Our Lady among Carmel, St. Elijah, St. Therese, and all the other Carmelite saints. May your blessing come upon all those who are out there listening to this podcast, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, for God's Playbook, I'm Father Rico. God loves you, and so do I. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on our Ko-Fi, K-O-F-I, or GoFundMe, at God's Playbook Podcast. Thanks, and God bless.